You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 705. Plot is the most underestimated of all the major writing skills. Most writers know the value of strong main character and lean, hard-hitting dialogue. But when it comes to plot, they think they're just going to figure it out as they go, which never happens. John Truby. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, today on the show, we have guest Jen Grisanti. Jen is a former Hollywood executive working with Aaron Spelling for many, many years and now is a current script consultant. She's also the author of Storyline, Finding Gold in Your Life Story, as well as the TV Writing Toolkit, How to Write a Script That Sells. And I want to have Jen on the show to get a perspective of someone who's actually been in the business, who knows what these studios are looking for, knows what these production companies are looking for, and how she really works with story and how to mind your own life story and experiences to help fuel your creative writing. And her clients have written for every major television show on the air over the past 10 years. The list is insane. I had a real ball talking to Jen, and she dropped some major knowledge bombs on the tribe this week. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jen Grisanti. I'd like to welcome to the show Jen Grisanti. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You are a very, very busy lady and uh, doing lots and lots of good work for a lot of screenwriters out there. So Thanks for taking the time out to talk to the tribe. It is my pleasure. Thank you. So how did you get into this crazy business? You know, uh, I went to USC and I studied cinema and communications. Never heard of it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, and then I, yeah, I got out of school. I really didn't have anybody contact wise. Uh, I knew I wanted entertainment. I didn't know exactly what capacity. So I went to Friedman uh, uh, Job Finding Agency, which is focused on entertainment. Uh, jobs. And that helped me build my resume. I also 
which is great for people to know, like just did cold calling and called all my top places that I'd want, I wanted to work. And I said, I'm willing to intern Mm -hmm. and that helped me build my resume. And then I, uh, real quick, is that something that you think that is, is doable even in today's world with so much more competition? I definitely do. I mean, I, I talk to so many people who do cold calling and it's fat. Well, first of all, when you're offering to work for free as an intern there, there, that, that certainly has its that, leverage with sure. it. You know, it's just, can you afford to do that? Um, so I def, I recommend like what I didn't know. And of course I was in college at a whole different time than now, but, um, what I didn't know is like, I should have started during college doing all my interns. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah. See, that's the smart way to go. And so, yeah. and yeah, i definitely believe in the cold calling is a good way. And then the great thing is when you do apply to an agency like the Friedman agency or the Comar agency in Beverly Hills, then you have a resume already started. So you're not like going into these companies with nothing on your resume. And, uh, and then you get placed. I got placed in the spelling office. So, you know, through Friedman and that changed my entire career. I mean, you know, that was uh, a pivotal moment uh, in the deciding of what direction I was going to go with my career. Now, let's talk a little bit about the spelling office. And when you yes. say spelling office, you're talking about the legendary Aaron Spelling. Can you, for the for the audience for audience members who don't know who Aaron Spelling is, please tell a little bit about who he is and what he did, and then how he, what was it like being mentored by a by a oh, giant like that? Of course, of course. So, well, Aaron Spelling, if you, i like the younger audience doesn't have near. Uh, as much knowledge. And I, mm-hmm. and I totally understand and appreciate that. CW has done a new 90210 and a new Melrose place, but Aaron Spelling was the originator of like Dynasty, TJ Hooker, and a million shows. Like he is one of the most prolific producers in history mm-hmm. with the number of hours of television that he produced. And then when I started in his office, he 90210 had been going for a year. Like there was a point in Aaron's career that um, <laughs> that they called ABC because he had seven shows on ABC. They <laughs> called it Aaron's Broadcasting Company. And so and then and that didn't go over too well. So so that, you know, so he went through that era and then he and then he all of his shows got canceled at a similar uh, time that were happening at that time. And then he kind of went through a dry spell uh, before 90210, which really, um, so when I entered his office, he was in such a place of, he was so humble and so open because of what he had experienced. And, and 90210 was taking off at the time that I was in the office. It was the first year. And then Melrose Place was the day that I started Melrose Place was being cast. Mm -hmm. So the original, the original Melrose Place and the original Beverly Hills 90210. So that, that was, you know, then spelling was on fire again. And then everybody wanted to be in business with him. And 
He did a lot of business with Fox, uh, obviously because of 90210 Melrose Place, and then branched out into CBS and other network and NBC. And, uh, and it really, things took off again. So it was a very good time. I was 24, he was 69. So it was a very good time because he was in a life place where, where he wanted to mentor. And he really wanted to teach me how to be his eyes and ears for, you know, for scripts and story coming in. So I was very blessed, you know. You were at the uh, right place at the yes, right time. I was. <laughs> yep. It was a good, good thing. <laughs> and for and for people listening, I mean, you can't underestimate the power of what 90210 did and Melrose yes. Place did at the time. It was a phenomenon. It yes. really, it really was. I yeah. actually lived uh, down the street in Florida in that mall where Luke Perry created the, the riot. Oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, it was a piv- pivotal time in my life. And even though like I had graduated college when it was first started, it was still such a pivotal time because high school is such a time for every single one of us. It's such a growth period that we <laughs> we're going through like a huge arc of growth and right. so and so looking at them kind of go through their their joys and their trials and their tribulations it yes. brings us back into it you know but they, so, but they were but they were all 27 at least yes exactly <laughs> i know they were there was, there, were, there was nobody who was a teenager. There was some that creative liberty. There was no doubt about that. I mean, Luke Perry, I think, was like 30. I, I honestly, <laughs> he was like 30 Isn't years that old. funny? I know, that's so funny. I remember all that went with that choice, yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I love Luke. Luke so, is such a good guy. Now, what did you um what were some of the biggest takeaways you got from Aaron? You know, uh, I mean, I I again it was a gift to be taught by a, a gentleman who was so about the work and so passionate about the work and so like he expected a lot from you in that he expected you know he expected perfection and that was a very hard thing to learn to really operate on that level but it was the greatest training ground and because he expected perfection from himself and he gave it and it really helped you to look at things and really operate at a high level. Now, it's not to say, like when I say the word perfection, you are going to make mistakes along the way in every path. And Mm -hmm. and it really, I think what a lot of what he taught me was, you know, if a mistake is made, then it's how you fix it that makes the difference. It's how you respond after it, how you take responsibility for it, how you move forward after it. He, he was a master when it came to story. So watching him in the, uh, we would have rough cuts in his office of the episodes and a rough cut is after production is done and it comes into the producer's office. And then you watch what's called rough cut. And, 
And it was always uh, really amazing to see how you could take a script and do all your notes on the script. And then when it would be filmed, then recognize, well, there are changes that I want to make. And through editing, like just watching how he would do things to like make the act break more impactful or uh, how he would move around scenes so that the story would work in a, a, a lot stronger way. And, and really, you know, learning about, I, I think the thing that made him the happiest was you know, knowing that he had the ability to discover young talent. And by young, I don't mean age. I just mean <laughs> young at the beginning of sure. the career. Mm -hmm. So he to discover newer talent and, and know that he could open a door that could change someone's life. Now, how long were you with Aaron Spelling? 12 years. Wow. So you were there for a while. Yes. Yeah. And you and you, I'm assuming you you rose in the ranks. I did. I buy now. And again, it's always good for people to hear like it's really focusing on what you want. I was lucky that at the time I was in his office, um, my mom had given me tapes from Tony Robbins. And that <laughs> tape set had mm -hmm. really uh, helped me hone in on what do I want and how do I get there? And what are the action steps that I need to take? So when I was in his office, I recognized there was no one reading scripts in his inner office, in his immediate office. So because he would always do like five or 10 calls trying to find the answers to things, I thought, well, why don't I just read the scripts? And of course, that meant that I worked till 830 at night and read scripts till 1130 at night, but it was worth it. And so that is what began the process of me reading scripts and then we go over the script the following day and that's really what taught me and then from there uh, I became a coordinator of current programming then a manager then a director and then I ran current programming at his company for my last two and a half years before I was promoted to CBS Paramount where I was vice president of current programming. And were you there during the charmed years? I was. Yes. I used to love that show. <laughs> yes. Yes. Charmed was a blast. It was amazing with that show to see where it started and see where it went as well. I think that was the most rewarding part of current programming was, you know, really watching a show develop and find its voice and find mm -hmm. its audience within the time and certainly we're in a day and age where uh the tv shows don't have the luxury now that they did when i started my career in that now they really you know ideally a current show usually can take anywhere from five to eight episodes to really find its voice and to really blend the network the studio and the showrunners vision into something that really works and now the hard thing is is very often you don't have that kind of time so you have to find what the show is sooner right because there's just too much comp i mean before yes, there was too three channels there yep. was three channels and you could yes. just sit you, you could either yes. watch what we're putting out or you can watch nothing it's exactly <laughs> there exactly was, there was so three true. there was three shows on at nine o'clock Everything. I know. I mean, when I started my <laughs> career, the only specs people were writing were Sopranos and Sex in the City. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know, how 
fascinating how different things are now. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Well, yeah. can, we, can we talk a little bit about the explosion in scripted series and the opportunities for writers today? I mean, isn't there like 450 yeah. scripted series? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Like, even though there's massive opportunity in television, and there definitely is, it doesn't make the path to getting a job <laughs> no. that much easier. It I wish not. that it did. <laughs> yeah, right, like you the know? doors would be open. No, yes. but the thing is, there's just more competition now. There is. If there would have yeah. been 450 uh, uh, shows in 1990, yeah, then yes, anybody who could literally just right. get up to a yeah. typewriter yeah. And, and write type, a script, yeah. type something like a monkey, could get a job. Yeah, but, but there's so much more. No, so more it's people. not the case. I mean, it really takes a village to get a person staffed. Like when I was starting as an executive, you know, really, I mean, I really worked hard on staffing most of the shows that I worked on. I worked with my executive producer and I was in all the meetings with the writers and I handled many of the calls with the agents. Mm-hmm. So you really saw you know, what went into why, why the people were getting staffed were getting staffed. And right. so it, it was, and, and it shows you, and I, I definitely think, and trust me in my, I've, uh, my, uh, my business, Jen Grisanti Consultancy Inc. I've been doing this for 10 years and mm-hmm. I look at how many feature writers I've worked with that I've, I've gotten to write television and just because there definitely is more opportunity in TV. So uh, if the talent is there, in my opinion, the platform to be in is television right now. That's what everyone I've yeah. been talking to says the exact same. Well, there's a rev- it's it's a renaissance, honestly. Yes. It really is. And it started yeah. with the Sopranos. I would agree. Would you argue it started with the Sopranos, honestly? Yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. And, and it kind of just went from there. Um, yeah. Because could could Breaking Bad have happened in the nineties? <laughs> I know. I mean, you do look at the pivotal shows, and the fascinating thing now, like when you look at shows now, like like uh, the OA and Sense Aid and Fleabag, and there's a mm-hmm. great show on Netflix called um, uh, Deportant, Ten Percent, or Call My Agent is the English title, mm-hmm. and that it's brilliant, and so. You know, I think the work being done right now, a lot of the shows that I teach from currently, I, I can't tell you, like like so many of the shows that I teach from are British shows too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that, that land on network, uh, I mean, on Netflix uh, or Amazon or Hulu. And uh, they get to go outside the box. They have more freedom. And because they have more freedom and more creative liberty, I I find that I'm able to create story tools from the writing on there that I'm able to pass on to the writer so that they can write the script that can't be ignored, that will lead to a sale, that will lead to them getting staffed. And do you suggest that uh, writers uh, do a screenplay or a teleplay first? Uh, which one do you think, if, if, there's, if you're a screenwriter and you want to get attention, do you write a teleplay first or do you write a, a feature screenplay first as a, as a, as a proof, of, not proof of concept? Well, but, but like, no, you know. I mean, you can, certainly like when you're looking at writing portfolio right now, mm-hmm. you could have a feature script in it. Now you're never going to get someone in television to read a feature script unless 
They hear it so good and the content in it is so right for the show that is being staffed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. So, so really in TV, you want to write now, now, of course, yet what you're asking, I think as well is, do you write a spec script of a show that's already on, mm-hmm. or do you write an original? And, you know, there are different schools of thought. Certainly when I came up the ranks, you had to have two spec scripts in your writing portfolio that were current, no, no older than two years old mm-hmm. and two originals. And I would definitely say there's been a shift and that there are writers out there who really don't want to write TV spec scripts or the existing shows. They only want to write original material. It used to be that you couldn't, you had to have it. And the reason was because when you would try to, you know, when I would pitch a writer to my executive producer with a TV pilot, they would read the pilot first and be, you know, and really want to know the original voice of the writer. But then they'd want, they'd ask for the spec script because they wanted to know that that writer knew how to mimic somebody else's voice. Right. And that's, so, that's, a, that's a really good point when you're, yeah. when you're writing for a show, because a lot of writers have a very unique voice. Uh, yes. You know, Tarantino has one of the arguably one of the most unique voices out there. Yes. Uh, and he did do some writing. He did a CSI uh, episode, which right. and and an ER episode actually. I love it. I lo- oh, that's great! I didn't know that. That's they did, great. They love and to that know was that. and they and he wrote them in right. Tarant- but he was Tarantino, so they let him kind of go off a little bit. Um, right. But generally, but generally speaking, when a writer comes on staff, he has to mimic the show. He can't oh, just yeah. be himself or herself. Yeah. How how do you uh, what kind of what kind of tips do you have for writers to be able to adapt like that? Well, you have to know, I think also now more than ever, you have to understand your voice. And, and I always ask writers, do you know what your voice is? And then I'll get like, say a third of a room uh, that knows. And then I'll say, how would you describe it? And then I'll have like maybe four hands left that, that really want, really know how to describe their voice. And Mm -hmm. so I think part of the journey for the writer is, knowing what your voice is. And then when you're mimicking somebody else's show, I've had many writers say, well, I can't really use my voice on someone else's show because it's their show. Now that mm-hmm. that's not true because you, what a writer, you know, I remember uh, Dan O'Shannon, who's an Emmy award winning writer from Modern Family. He said to me like one of his strategies and I, I loved it of when he was staffing for shows at the beginning of his career was he would find out the character that they struggled the most with writing wise. Mm -hmm. And he would make, he would have a pitch ready with that character in a, a stronger light so that they would realize they need him on that show. And Mm -hmm. so I, I thought that was such a, such a great approach, but I, I think like for me, when I, I remember watching a show like say Big Love on HBO Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I would know as soon as I saw the writer's name, I would know if I was going to love the episode because I so understood the voice of each writer and the capability Mm -hmm. of each writer with the story. So, so there's definitely, even in mimicking 
somebody else's voice. Like you, you with your spec scripts, you definitely don't want to write a spec script that doesn't feel like a produced episode. You want to write a script that feels like a produced episode, but you also want to write a script that dives and digs deep into you know, the emotional aspect of the story or the uniqueness of the story that makes it so that yours is a script that can't be ignored. Like I remember, um, I remember there was a writer on Charmed who I brought him in to the executive producer and he got staffed in the room based on the strength of his spec script. He wrote a soprano script that was so memorable. Like I still remember it. And it was, you know, Tony, when he, they showed a flashback of Tony when he was a child and he got caught masturbating by his mom. <laughs> and, and the shame that was in that moment transferred to everything that was going on in the current plot. And so he, he threaded it through so that everybody could connect with what that experience must have been like, which brought you so much deeper into the story. And it was a memorable script, mm -hmm. you know? And then like, I mean, people did stuff like, I had writers write combination spec scripts. Like I had, there was a writer that wrote a Sopranos and a Sex in the City mixed, you know? So there, there certainly were different <laughs> strategies that people use. Wait a minute. Like, so hold on, that's Tony and, and yeah. Carrie in the same yeah. episode? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he got some notice for it. I know. And, the, and people remember this. I remember there was also a writing team who had been together for many, many years, and they wrote a pilot that was loosely based on their split. And everyone wanted to know that story. So that became, you know, so I definitely think there are, there are such um, original ways. And as I said, when you look at shows like Fleabag and The OA and Deportant, like, there, you, there are ways to go outside the box with your voice, but still have uh, a strong structure. There are also shows that, um, that are succeeding, quite honestly, that are, the structure isn't great, but the voice is great. And mm -hmm. so, you know, so, so there's something to be said about this as well. That's why I think it's more important now than ever to know your voice and, and create concepts that really utilize the strength of your voice. Uh, and that voice is so strong in a show like Stranger Things, which is yes. a phenomenon yes. at this point. Definitely. In the world. Absolutely. Um, but that voice is so strong and yes. so specific. It is. 13 um, Reasons Why. I mean, so many. Like, there's yeah. just so many. Smells that's now up for best comedy. Yeah, mm -hmm. there, there are so many shows that, that that people are going outside the box and they're taking risks and they're not doing traditional structure and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but there's so a freedom to do that stuff yes, now where you is. couldn't you couldn't do it before yeah i um, agree look at a show like frank and uh frankie and uh, grace and frankie yes which is i just love that show yeah i do too it's a great <laughs> it's show such a well written yes, show it it's is so funny and it's so out like they would never put that would never be on network television it just yeah. couldn't it couldn't be i agree network. i but agree it was so wonderful to see them all yeah. just pounding it at you know the stories are just pounding at the uh, at a high level as you will yes. um yeah. 
Now, what is the biggest mistake you see first-time uh, writers make? Uh, you know, I think it, when it comes down to development story, I think the biggest mistake made in pilots is either too much character and not enough plot or too much plot and not enough character. So um, I think it's really recognizing that, you know, uh, TV is a character-based business. So your audience is coming back because of your characters. So, yeah. so it's really doing the, the work on developing two to three of your characters in a very strong way that brings your audience back. And, and I think that many writers, you know, first they'll populate their show way too much and have way too many characters and, and they'll have several characters serving the same purpose and doing the same thing. And so, you know, I think it's understanding, it's really understanding that less is more. And, and when an executive, like when I would have 300 scripts behind me during staffing season, and I opened a script, first of all, with dramas, you wanna be around 58 to 60 pages max. And, uh, and you don't want it to be so complex that, the executive would have to read it three times to really be able to grasp the concept. Mm -hmm. So, so it's really writing toward that recognition. And I would say newer writers, you know, have the weight of, Oh my God, I have to make this stand out and it has to be a dynamo. And in order to be a dynamo, so many people think they have to reinvent the wheel and, yes. and in doing so <laughs> they like lose a grasp. Um, um, what it is they're trying to say with their story. Because they're trying to impress. Yes. Now, with that, and on that topic, trying to impress, and this is something I've seen and I've heard from multiple places, so I'd love to hear your opinion. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Sometimes when you're reading a script, especially from a new writer, you you see them using not only 50 cent words, but dollar fifty words mm -hmm. um, that are just, you know, so out there as far as, you know, just reading. Do you feel that by doing that, you alienate the reader sometimes because, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a vocabulary test? <laughs> well, you know, I know that note is definitely given in Writers on the Verge at NBC. I'm a writing instructor there. Mm -hmm. Like, and I've done that for nine years now. And I mm -hmm. know that one of the notes that is often given um, by my colleague, Karen Horn, who, mm -hmm. who runs the whole diversity program at NBC, um, all of the diversity programs, Karen, like she's definitely given the note of, if I can't understand it, then you know what I mean? So, so you have to, yes, you have to think of those things. Like if it's one thing like to go, oh, I want to use big words because I want to impress my audience. Now it, it really is looking, I always say like, you always have to think what serves the story in the strongest right. way. Right. And what, you know, and, and, but if the reader has to literally stop reading your script and go to the dictionary because they can't really place the use of the word, right. then there's a problem. You're interrupting the process. You're interrupting the flow. 
But I am a person, I have to be honest, I like the high vocabulary. Like <laughs> I am interested in people who get, and I like the lyrical and the poetic use in the language. I'm a big person of, I love when I read uh, action lines, that they even get really creative with the action lines. Like so that gotcha. for me is, I love all that. Now that I read in, um, in Stephen King's book on writing, he right. actually brought that up. He's like, look, you know, and he's arguably one of the most successful writers in history. Yeah, uh, he's like, look, I can use big words. Watch. And he just lays out this little paragraph <laughs> with 40, I mean, 45 words I've never even heard of. And he's like, right. did you understand that? No, that means I didn't sell that book. So yeah. stop it. <laughs> yeah. And I could not, I could not agree more. <laughs> I have to admit though, like, I don't think I've ever put a script down and said, those words are too big and I, I can't get it. Now, it, it, it rare now, I, but you're also very experienced. Reader. I'm experienced. I've been <laughs> yes. in this for 25 years. Yeah, so, so there's, yeah. you're, you're yeah. not the audience per se as the yeah. general audience reading scripts today. <laughs> yes, that's true. Now it's very true. Well, and I have to say, it's fascinating thing too, that in what people have to consider, like, you know, I have um, writers in my StoryWise community and they're always on a private Facebook and I always look at the comments and see what writers are talking about. And I know recently I've had several of my writers from my StoryWise 10 week teleseminar end up doing incredibly well in the competitions and the writing programs. And so um, they were talking about this one festival, which I'm not gonna name, but they were talking about this one festival where you know several of them had won or placed in several competitions based on the script, their one script. And, and then they sent it to this festival and suddenly the feedback didn't at all align with all the other feedback that they've gotten. And, and that's because some of these festivals pay their readers nothing and their readers are 25 years old and they don't have the experience with story to be able to give the feedback that really, really reflects what the work is. And so when you're writing the big words and you're going over the top, you have to think about things like that. Like if you have a 25 year old reader who misses the whole point of your story because of your vocabulary, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it'll never get to a person like you who can actually yeah. understand it because you, yes. you, the gatekeepers will let it go through. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's strategy as much yeah. as it is writing. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. It's no, it, everything is strategy. I always say to writers, like when you're designing your writing portfolio, you have to think, what are the three top shows that I would die to write on? And then you have to look at your portfolio and go, does my portfolio support that outcome? Fairly simple, but very it's something mm -hmm. that is missed quite often. Yes. Yeah, it's like the director who wants to direct action movies, but he's only done period dramas his entire yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I am a believer that I, I see the dream happen all the time. So I'm definitely not a person who's mm -hmm. going to say the dream doesn't happen because the dream happens every day. Mm -hmm. And, and you have, I think the, the biggest, the strongest component for the writers I've worked with 
that uh, have made it in a big way is belief. You have to have belief in your talent because if you don't believe, nobody else will. Now, what is what stops screenwriters from being successful? Getting in their own way. I mean, <laughs> I, I see it all the time. I see mm-hmm. it all the time. You know, you see writers who write too much and don't know how to edit back. And and they talk like that as well when they're in a room. Like there, there is so much being said that you have to really fish out what is the main point of what is being said. So that's certainly a way. And I know that's nervous energy and that's and you you have to go through things to really know them. But but things like in other th- ways people get in their own way is they'll they'll uh they'll be in a room and they'll alienate other people or they'll um they'll talk they won't talk at all. <laughs> so they won't contribute. So, right. so that's a problem or they'll talk too much and you'll feel like, okay, they just want to hear themselves think. And, and, you know, there's not valuable stuff coming out here. So I, I think the whole editing process on the page and in the room uh, is the biggest part. And then I think you have incredibly talented writers who are very internal people. Mm-hmm. And to make a writing career happen, you have to be external. So, so that journey, you know, the, the perfect pilot that went into that was Silicon Valley. You know, Richard, when Ehrlich said, dude, you got to make something a Pied Piper or you're out of the house. Mm-hmm. Richard then, who was a very internal person, had to learn to become external. And in the first scene, he's pitching Mm -hmm. his Pied Piper idea to these two uh, guys at the sink at the office and they laugh at him. Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, but that's the process. Like the growth process is, yeah, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna pitch ideas that people don't like. That's okay. At least you're trying and you're learning and you're growing and you're evolving and you're moving forward. And that's what you want to be doing. You certainly don't want talent. Like it drives me crazy when I see incredible talent Mm -hmm. that may never be realized because of one thing that that gets in the way of the outcome happening. That happens in every aspect of of life. But in the film business, I've seen it too. Directors who just get in their own way. And we've seen it publicly too sometimes. Yes. Oh yes, we have. <laughs> I think it's a whole new world going on right now. I think, do you know, like for me though, and not to, to go into anything on that, which I certainly could. Sure, but, of course. Um, but I, I, you know, my feeling with that is now that it's been exposed and yes. and the careers and livelihoods and everything else are, are, have, are gone, gone. Are, are gone down the drain. And, and now it's like, it has to be about, the focus needs to move into changing systems mm-hmm. so that this doesn't happen. Like mm-hmm. that is more important than ever right now. I certainly mm-hmm. love that out of all this, our young daughters are going to be able to go after the dream without having to go through that like that makes my heart very happy to know i don't have kids but my my two daughters yeah (laughs) like that 
it's an important thing. And so I, I think it, I think it's a growth time for everybody in the business to really look at behavior and understand it. Yeah. I, the one thing I find fascinating about it, and I've never seen this, uh, I don't think ever other than maybe in the, um, McCarthy day, not McCarthy, but, um, is it McCarthy? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Well, yeah. they were, they were doing the, they were doing the communist hunt. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that I don't think that's, you know, everything that's happening right now is completely valid, uh, yes. and needed without question, yes. but I've never seen complete careers, Oscar winning careers. I know. Gone. I know. Like it's gone. Kevin Spacey will not work again. I can't see, I can't see a a path back. I can't see a path back. Hollywood loves a redemption story. I do. That's uh, like, there are people like Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, (laughs) Bill Cosby that, that you look at and, you know, and there are other there are other big ones that I'm not even going to name. Oh no, but, we know of. I've, look, I've you heard, know, you sit there and you go, they can't, they can't. Like it, the, it was too dark, and there were too many people saying too many things that aligned, and so you have to. But I, you know, see stuff like this intrigues me on a psychological mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. because I would love to see a show done where the lead character is like a Kevin Spacey or a Matt Lauer or a Harvey Weinstein. And how do they move through life after that fall? So like you that mean, interests so me. So like a Breaking Bad, but instead yeah. of selling meth that they're, they're harassers. They're <laughs> redefining <sexual> <laughs> their life. I mean, they're having to figure wow, out that's, that's a where a they went wrong and how do they get life back on track? That like, intrigues me. Because yeah. I'm, I'm, that's a curiosity too. Like yeah. after, you know, I mean, literally they wiped Kevin Spacey from this yeah. new movie that came out yes. a few weeks yeah. before the release. Isn't that's that wild. That is, I've never. Like you're erased. That's like you're, crazy. You're gone. Yeah. You're doing it now like with House of Cards. Thing. Now you're doing yeah. it with House of Cards and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and the funny thing is, I, I you know I'm talking to my friends who you know are in the business, but you know I've been around a bit longer than them, and I'm like, this guy's gonna come out next. This guy's gonna come out next, and this oh, guy's I gonna am come too. out next. Do you know what I have done that too? <laughs> you know it's so funny that you said that. Like I was at dinner with a close friend of mine who yep. had a big project with a big producer, and I said his days are numbered. And two days later, it was in the trades. And and yes, it's so true. It's. I mean, I, I was talking to my buddy the other yep. day. And I'm like, you know who's coming out next? It's gonna yep. be Ratner's coming next. And, yeah, and that sit- was the Ratner is the one. We all heard it. I know. We all knew. And I knew. knew. And by the way, I heard those stories when he was in Miami pre-rush hour. Yes. Before he was a big. So I'd heard these stories. And then I heard about Brian Singer. Oh, I heard about. Before that happened. Yeah. Brian and Kevin. Both I heard about them back in 2001. Yeah. I was hearing about those two. Yeah. Uh, that's how long ago it was. Isn't it wild? It's insanity. Well, so- and the thing the thing that's hard about this too is there there's a lot of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So so you know, there's certainly uh, you know, things have to change. 
Absolutely. Because there, there are a lot of people that supported this who aren't being punished. Oh, yeah. And who were a part of this happening. So it things have to change so that we don't have uh, careers going down the toilet left and right every day. Like literally, it feels like a PR every- thing of who gets what day when they come out. I mean, it's insane. It's it's insane. And it's not just our business. It's now every every It's every business. And it's all over the world. London is now heavy into it. And then Australia with Jeffrey Rush. I mean, everybody is in it now. It's getting, it's getting, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to get pretty, we've gone, we've gone way off topic. Yes, we have. That's all right. That's what's going on right now. That's that's topical. But that is how do we draw from that and bring that to the page? Without question. And that's, uh, that's very, very valid. Now, um, can you, can you talk real quick about some bad habits you see writers do all the time? Um, well, you know, there are people who will harp on typos and this and that. And, mm-hmm. and I I say whatever you can do, have as few typos as possible. I definitely agree that it will distract you. However, I, I, I have also seen writers who just kill themselves worry-wise after they enter a program because they find two typos. And, and what you have to know is if the content is there, that's what sells. So, yeah, so, yeah. so you really have to trust in the content. I would say, you know, so they, you know, things like things to look at, like, you know, study scripts. I mean, look <laughs> at, you know, look at scripts, know how many pages are per act. No, you know, and there's no steadfast rule on how many pages per act, but have a general idea. Like don't have a 30 page act one and then five pages for every other act. Like really know things that you should know through that, through looking at scripts. Certainly you can go to the writer's guild library. There are many people who say, well, I can't get a whole scripts. Number I on my website, and I'm sure you have resources mm-hmm. as well, where you go to my resources uh, page and my sure. links, and I have all the websites that have scripts. And mm-hmm. so you can get scripts. And then I would say another mistake writers make is they're not prepared for meetings. They don't know who they're meeting with. And there's no excuse mm-hmm. for this right now. Like the internet tells you everything about <laughs> everyone. And so you, you know, walk into a meeting, be prepared, be ready to, I always tell writers too, to think when you're going into a meeting, have three marketing points that you absolutely do not want to leave the meeting without sharing. Mm-hmm. have three points, then you could relax in the meeting, but know that you have to bring up those three points. Now, what and, are those, when you mean marketing points, what do you mean exactly? Well, anything that markets you as a writer. So okay. say for example, um, I'm there, I, ha- I had, I'm not going to name him because I, sure. I don't want to embarrass him, but it was actually, I love that he shared this. I had a very big showrunner at one of my seminars mm-hmm. share a story that he had gone into a meeting that was a medical show and mm-hmm. he had 13 years background uh, as a medical administrator and he forgot to bring that up. <laughs> so, yes. So. You know, there are things that, you know, you get nervous and you forget. And so you, when you hit, yeah. So that's an example. Like you, you have to be prepared. You have to know 
what is the show I'm up for? What do I have in my background that shows the executive that I have a huge well of story to be able to tell story for this concept, if you're going on a specific show. If you're not going on a specific show, then you wanna know like, what are my overall general story points? And that could, you know, you definitely wanna think about what is a personal anecdote that I have that reveals something about me. For example, you know, I can say for myself, when I started my own business 10 years ago, my two main story points were and are, you know, I, I was in a long relationship that ended in a short marriage and represented the death of the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had a, uh, my career was interrupted mid flow when I was a vice president because I thought I was going to run a studio. And mm-hmm. so when the job, when my contract wasn't renewed, on the heels of an unexpected situation, then I had to readjust and redefine. And Mm -hmm. everything that, uh, I was a blogger for Huffington Post for like seven or eight years, Mm -hmm. and my books, my two books sold on those two story points. Mm -hmm. So you have to really, really, you know, and when you share your emotional truth, that's how you discover your audience. That's how you find when I'll go into a room and I'll say, oh, Aaron Spelling was my mentor for 12 years and I've been in the business for all this time. I've been a writing instructor for NBC for nine years. I this, I that. People don't connect with that because they don't know that life experience. But Mm -hmm. when I say I was in a long relationship that ended in a short marriage and represented the death of the fairy tale. How many people know what it is to have your heart broken? Then you have half the room, everyone knows. And then I'll say, how many people have lost a job? Then you have the other half of the room raise their hand. And it's like, then then it's like, I see you, you see me. And that's what you want to do. Now, can you discuss a little bit about your books? Yes. Um, So Storyline Finding Gold in Your Life Story is uh, adding fiction to your truth. So... As a an executive, the biggest thing I was known for was really diving deep in my writer meetings into the well of story. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Of writers. And then I would say, have you ever written about that? And I'll say not in an autobiographical way but in a way of sharing your emotional truth. And and the difference in the gift of sharing your emotional truth is that you can heal and writing is healing. You can heal and bury your truth in fiction, which is why people write. And so, you know, it's really, this book is all about through breaking down um, features and television, and both books are based on my philosophy of story, which in simplistic terms, and I certainly go into a much more advanced look at it in my books, but in simplistic terms, my formula that I discovered that uh, Oscar-nominated, Emmy-nominated, Golden Globe-nominated stories, what I found when I extracted a formula was that every story starts with a powerful trigger incident that pushes the character into a dilemma. 
And then the choice that is made in that dilemma is what defines the external goal. And then every action taken, obstacle hit, needs to link back to that goal. And it's when the goal isn't defined that the story doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So we have to know what the character wants and why they want it. And so, so that philosophy is in, in every single one of us, like you talked about Michael Haig and mm-hmm. everyone out there, you know, Lee Jessup, Pilar Alexandra, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dara Marks, you know, like everyone, the gift of, of uh, story people really is that we are sharing what we know through our lens through our worldview mm-hmm. of story. I happen to come from the studio executive worldview. So that's how I see story. I see story through that lens. And then after leaving that view and becoming a writing instructor for NBC and building my own business, then that lens became even more enhanced because I was I had the time to dig deeper into the story process and really see what it was and read every single thing out there. I mean, I, I highly recommend that every writer, like read every script you can get your hands on, read every book that comes out on story and recognize Mm -hmm. there's a value and a gift through understanding other people's worldview and understanding how to utilize it in your voice and your worldview. That's that's a <clears throat> very good point. Is understanding and when 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 you're following people and and because there's so many people, so many podcasts out there, yeah, so many blogs out there, yeah, uh, and a lot of them are saying a lot of the same stuff, yeah. Um, but it's all about perspective, and I think that's one of the reasons that's why that's what separates you, right? Because I mean, look, a lot of the information that I put out there through Indie Film Hustle is out in other places, but I have yes. a unique perspective, and you're right, I never thought of it that way, but my yeah. worldview is coming from post-production and, and yes. film and kind of like the the trenches, if you will, exactly. uh, but not from directing a $200 million movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's and not and my there's a value in your perspective because we need to know all of it. Correct. You know, like you'll have people who will say, I'll have people who say, well, Jen, have you ever written a script? And I have written a script, but I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. Like I am, I recognize that my strength is internal with writing. So writing articles, content, and books is where my love and my passion is. Mm. And screenwriting is not my passion because I was raised on the analytical side of it. And that's mm-hmm. that's the side that I love. I, I love diving into why story works and how to create tools to pass on to writers so that they can make their story work. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my, uh, my guests. So that's kind of like rapid fire. Yes. Um, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Uh, I think write, write, write <laughs> is the, the, probably the big, I know so many writers who don't write. So you you have to have a body of work. You have to fearlessly move through every story and recognize that you grow with every script you write. So you have to, you know, really, and I, I think it's, it's, 
It's understanding your passion and your emotional truth. And then it's also looking at what the market, but not, but recognizing your passion is what sells. So the market has room for new ideas. So don't think you have to write only toward the market. Mm -hmm. Know that you have to write toward your passion because your passion is what sells. Now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? Uh, you know, I've had so many. That's such a good question. I mean, like on a spiritual level, uh, you know, there are, uh, uh, oh God, there's a book called uh, understanding the why uh, I can't I forget the name exactly of it. I would say in uh, in entertainment, in writing, my favorite books, and I have so many of them. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to say I love Stealing Fire from the Gods. Yes, great book. Uh, great book. I love uh, I love DB Giles' book, The Screenwriter Within. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love uh, oh my God, there's a book that I'm reading right now. And I have to tell you, I have never heard of this writer and his book is blowing me away. And Mm -hmm. his name is Matt Bird and Mm -hmm. it's the hidden tools of story. And it, the wild thing is, is I think it's structured toward fiction writers, not specifically television or film, but he goes so deep into television and film that that I look at him and I think, all right, if there were a book that I, if I had the time to go at the level he goes, like that's a book that I wish I'd written. What's the name of the book again? It's, oh God, here, I'm looking it up. I think it's The Hidden Tools of Story. Um, It is, uh, I'm looking it up right now. but uh, Matt Bird. Okay, I'm going to put yeah. it in. I just want to put the link in the description. Yeah, put the link in because that book I have referred to people and my my clients have been blown away by like literally I dog-eared so many pages. It was crazy. I'm, I also love Chris Vogler. I also mm-hmm. love Michael Haig. Sure. You know, I am a huge, oh, here it is. I am a huge, uh, oh, The Secrets of Story. Okay. So it's called The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction. Okay, great. So, um, so yeah, that will give you an, I'm, I'm a very spiritual writer. So the Mm -hmm. type of, of authors that I'm drawn toward are people who think in the same way. Perfect. Now, what lesson took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Uh, (laughs) Probably, you know, I I do think the idea that I'm always learning is listen before you speak, like really listen. I Mm -hmm. I think the biggest gift, and I, I do practice it every day, is really like I think what we tend to do, certainly in the writer's room, in meetings, and everything else is we we tend to like either defend or get ahead of like we're we're hearing, but we're already thinking of our answer that we're not really listening. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say the thing that I am always, I feel like the greatest gift we give each other is our time and our attention. Mm-hmm. So so that is something I, I think when I think about my my arc of growth 
in the business. And I think of when, when we first start our careers, we always think, oh my God, we have to speak up. We have to say stuff. We have to make a, a point. And, and you do, but you, you don't want to do it just to do it. Mm-hmm. You only want to do it when you truly have something to say. And what are three of your favorite films of all time? I would say my very favorite film of all time is The Lives of Others, uh, which is a Mm. German film that won uh, Best uh, Foreign Film, uh, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 2007. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, that is definitely, and then I would say the King's speech, Mm -hmm. I think was a beyond perfect film. Uh, I also, I would say, I mean, there are so many that I love that it's ridiculous, but, Mm -hmm. or I wish there were more. I say that there are so many, I'm talking over like a 10 year period. I wish there were more in one year, Mm -hmm. um, Birdman. I have oh, to say, like wonderful. Birdman, I I watched, I saw Birdman three or four times. Like for me, that was that was just brilliant. It's an, it's an ep- that movie yeah. when I when I saw that movie, I, I was watching the screener and I was like, oh, that's what a director does. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, I forgot because yes. I haven't yeah. seen that in so long. Yeah. That's what a director does. It is. It's, it's- fascinating when you see something too, like. What I can say, like there was, uh, I remember when I first watched The Hurt Locker mm-hmm. and I thought, oh my God, there's something so special here, but I have to watch it again because mm-hmm. I feel like I missed some of it. Mm-hmm. And when I watched it again, it was so impactful mm-hmm. to really see just where true brilliance comes from and, and how we feel story, you know? So Yeah. Well, I mean, she did make one of the greatest action movies of the 90s, Point yes. Break, obviously. Yep, yep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yay for Catherine. Yeah. Uh, um, now, um, where can people find you online? They can find me uh, very easy, jengrisanti.com. <clears throat> so uh, uh, that's very easy. My email is jen at jengrisanti.com. Uh, mm-hmm. Also very easy. And if you Google me, you can find out everything there is to know, just <laughs> like I mentioned that you should do on every person who you go to meet. Mm-hmm. I also have to recommend too, like, is, I don't know, are you familiar with Film Courage? Yeah, I know them. Sure. So it's interesting because film. I did an interview for uh, Film Courage that it, they divided it into like 10 parts. Mm-hmm. And I have so many people who say, oh my God, I learned so much through that. So that, that's, that's, if you want to know me and understand my philosophy, that is, uh, that dives pretty deep into it. Great. I'll put some of those in the show notes as well. Yes, Jen, thank you so much for taking thank the time to you. talk to the tribe. And congrats was- on your show. And I love everything you're doing and I'm honored to be a part of it. And I love that you are getting out the word out and, <laughs> and helping writers. I, I think there's nothing better. Thank you again so much. All right. Thank you. I want to thank Jen for being on the show and dropping those major knowledge bombs on the tribe. Thank you again, Jen. And if you want to get links to anything we discussed in this episode, including her contact information, her books, her courses, things like that, just head over to IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 705.
And if you haven't already, please head over to filmmakingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.